Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, hello, Light Church. Am I so loud? Is is this loud? Is it okay? All right. Um, Just wanted to take a quick second to introduce myself in case you don't know me. My name is Emily. Um, My amazing husband, Isaac, was leading us in worship just a moment ago. And I have the privilege and honor of getting to share from God's word today. Um, And you know, I actually kind of feel the um, prompting to just reflect on like worship for a second. So here we are together, we're having this like corporate moment and Isaac is like skillfully leading us in a a personal encounter with God and he's asking us to sing these words like, I receive your gift, I receive your blessing. And that's wonderful and that's beautiful. And I think you can really go deep in that if you actually know what God's blessing is towards you. And so if you are here and you're like, yeah, I really didn't connect to that part, my prayer for you today is that after you hear um, this teaching, you walk away knowing, oh, this is what it means to receive the gift of God and the blessing of the Father. Is that okay? So I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to pray over us as we begin. Father, gardener of our heart, I invite you to come and till the soil of our heart, the soil of our church. Would you make us ready for the planting of a heavenly harvest? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a study done years ago on a group of children who had been orphaned. And they wanted to see the effects of poverty and malnutrition on their psyche even after having been adopted. So the study showed that although the children were all placed in loving, safe, and financially stable homes, the children still exhibited behaviors of poverty and like fearing that they would be fed. So what did this look like? It looked like parents finding their children stealing food from the pantry and like shoving it under their bed. Or they would catch them like swiping food from the dinner table and stuffing them in their pockets. They had extreme difficulty believing that they were going to be taken care of because previously they probably suffered from not knowing when they would have their next meal. And so, what they did to help these children was to offer them a loaf of bread before they went to bed. And they would say, hey, would you, would you like this? Would you like to take this and sleep? Like, you can go to sleep with this. And so the children would. They would opt to taking the bread, and they would sleep with it in their tiny little arms. And days and months later, over time, the children began to believe that they would be taken care of, that they truly would be safe. 
until finally they didn't need the bread because they believed in the covenant of their relationship in their family. You see, because they were adopted upon the final signing of their adoption papers. So instantly, they were in a family, they were loved, they were provided for, they were safe, but it took a long time for them to believe that they were safe. And I think this is how we experience our covenant with God. At the moment of salvation, we are adopted into the family of God. We are adopted into covenant relationship with him. But sometimes it takes a long time for us as believers to believe in our belovedness, our our identities in the family of God, and ultimately to embrace our full freedom in Christ. So as we continue on in our sermon series of Tilling the Soil, today we will talk about this critical theological topic of the covenant, the curse, and the blessing of God. So we're going to move through four four movements, I like to call them, Um, the birth of the covenant, the blessing and curse within the covenant, the beauty of the covenant, and the battle we still wage in the covenant. Now, I want to let you know, this is um, probably two sermons in one, so I'm going to do my best to clip us along, but I am asking for a bit of grace, and of course, um, you are free to leave whenever you need to leave. (laughs) I am unoffendable. All right, so here's our teaching text for today. Genesis 15. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how, it, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He's referring to the land that God just promised him, the promised land. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other the birds. However, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Here we then see that God promises Abram his inheritance. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So what's a covenant? (laughs) Honestly, we don't have a modern word for covenant. And it's hard to even have a modern framework for covenant because it is a very unique agreement. Um, the covenant, uh, covenant in Hebrew, the word for this is baret, and in Greek it is diatek, meaning, this is Tim Mackey's um, definition, which I think is excellent, it's a f- entering a formal 
relational partnership to accomplish a goal. So I'd like to show you an example of an ancient covenant because covenants were actually made often in the ancient world. It wasn't unusual. And so I've pulled one example from 1 Kings chapter 5. It says, in this way, Haram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and juniper logs he wanted. And Solomon gave Haram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household. In addition to 20,000 baths of pressed olive oil, Solomon continued to do this for Haram year after year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, just as he had uh, promised him, and there were there were peaceful relations between Haram and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. So here we see that there is a formal element to this covenant, right? Supplies were shared. You have olive oil, I have wheat, you're bringing the best from your land, I'm bringing the best from my land, we're going to make this exchange. That's great, but that's only a contract what makes it a covenant is that there was a relational side involved. In verse 12, it says, there were peaceful relations between the two kings. So in a covenant, this relational side looks like, okay, we're going to bring all of our strengths, exchange them to accomplish a goal to help one another, but also I'm going to care about you you're going to care about me. And so what was the goal that they were trying to accomplish? Flourishing. They wanted their, their people, their, you know, their regions to thrive and to expand. Tim Keller describes covenants as the strongest and most binding of all relationships because of how it combines both law and love. It is more than contractual, but not less. So many times as Christians, we gravitate towards one side or the other. That meaning the side of law or the side of love. And so if you have a tendency towards legalism, you're going to gravitate towards the law side. Like, you get that, right? You want to interact with God only as your master, but that's not the fullness of a covenant with God. In Hosea 2, verse 16, God says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. God doesn't want to interact with us only in the context of servant-master. He wants relationship. He wants intimacy. Maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum, and you really only want the love side of the covenant. You're like, God, I love you. Thank you for loving me, but do not tell me what to do. <laughs> right? But law, or sorry, love without law is actually not love at all. I have a friend who was sharing with me once that her parents, growing up, let her do whatever she wanted. She could do whatever she wanted. She could eat whatever she wanted. She could watch whatever she wanted. She could stay out as late as she wanted. And I was like, oh, wow. Did you just like think your parents were the coolest ever? And she was like, you know, 
to be honest, when I was like at a party and then some kids had to leave at nine because their parents had curfews and like they're hemming and hawing, do you want to know what was in the depth of my heart? She said, I would look at them and think, I wish my parents loved me that much. I wish they loved me enough to want to protect me. Because love without law is actually not love. But both sides, if we only gravitate to one, are actually missing the beauty of true covenant. Because covenant is the combination, the conjunction of law and love. So what's happening here in the story of Abram? Because this is the covenant we're going to be examining today. So God gets done telling Abraham, or Abram at the time, in verse 7, that he is going to have descendants that are going to outnumber the stars, and he's going to um, be given all this land, and he's going to take possession of it. But this was a little hard for Abram to believe. And so he asked God, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? God responds by saying, bring me a heifer, which, by the way, is a female cow who has not yet born calves, a goat, a ram, turtle doves, pigeons. Great. We're like, cool. But us as the modern readers, um, if you're like me, probably feeling confused at this moment. You're like, how does bringing all these animals together, cutting them in half, um, prove to me, God, that you are going to really give me this land? Well, even though it didn't, doesn't make sense to us, this would have made sense to Abram. And he would have immediately known that God was getting ready to make a covenant with him. Why? Because this ritual of butchering the animals and like laying them out, one on one side, one on the other, and leaving a path in the middle was a, a regular ritual and custom accompanied with making covenants in the ancient world. So how, ancient, so how did ancient Near Eastern covenants get established? So I'm going to share a little bit more about this. So first you would have a lord and a servant. That was like the most common covenant, um, covenant makers. So they would make an agreement, right? Remember, like the kings, you have oil, I have wheat. Okay, so they figure out what are you bringing to the covenant, what am I bringing to the covenant? And then they would slaughter these animals, spread them out. You make the aisle. Why an aisle? Because then the servant, who was the lesser party and had less to offer, he would walk through the bloody aisle as if to say, if I do not keep and fulfill my terms of the covenant, may it be done unto me as these animals. That is what it was representing. I actually have a picture <laughs> to show you an artist's interpretation of this. It was a messy business. It, it's like kind of intense. So, what are the terms of covenant relationship? This is important because this leads us into blessings and curses. 
Because blessings and curses are a result of honoring or dishonoring the covenant. So if we're in a covenant with God, it's very important that we know the terms. So what are the terms of this covenant? So God's covenant made with Abraham, it's interesting, it doesn't, he doesn't actually specifically articulate the requirements that he's meant to fulfill in the covenant. However, there is an obvious expectation that what he is asking of him, as in God asking Abram, he's asking him to trust God, have faith in God, and obey God. This isn't the first covenant that God actually made with a man. The first covenant, as we all know, was made with Noah, and God promised that he would never flood the earth again. The next covenant is made with Abraham. And then later, he makes a covenant with Moses. And this is where we actually get the Ten Commandments. And then finally, he makes a covenant with David. And he's like, I'm going to give you a king through your genealogy, right? That will restore and redeem you all. But it's not necessarily that God is making all these new individual promises and covenants to all of these people. It's more that God's covenant with his people, as represented by these men, gets expanded upon. It's like each time he interacts with these, with these men, we learn more about the covenant that we're in. And so with Moses, we get the literal terms of the, well, we get the law, and thus we know how to fulfill the covenant. And why did God give Moses these laws? He gave him those laws and us these laws because after Abraham, what was very clear is that we don't know how to obey God. And because he so wants to bless us, he's like, okay, I'm just going to lay it out clearly. This is what you have to do in order for me to be able to give you all of my blessing because that's what he wants to do. Are you with me? Okay, cool. So, excuse me. So what happens if we obey the terms of the covenant? We're blessed. And what does it mean to be blessed by God? This is important. So this is a biblical definition of blessing. The blessing of God is when he shares his life-producing ability with others. It's about flourishing. It's about multiplication of life. But, it, but it's not just about procreation. Okay, it's, it, it does include that, but it's actually more about the full, like creating fullness of life. It's about creativity. It's about expanse. It's about vision. It's about the ability to dream, to hope, to have joy, to have peace, to be free, to become all that God has designed us to be. That is the blessing of God. So if we don't obey, 
and we break the covenant, then we receive the curse. Or maybe a word we're more familiar with, we experience the consequences of breaking the covenant. The biblical definition of a curse is this. When God hands people over to the consequences of seizing our own blessing on our own terms. When I was a freshman in high school, I had a crush on a boy. I know. And I was like, hey, God, can I date him? And he very clearly said no. So what was my response? Of course, I tantrumed. I was like, what? Why? I've been a Christian my whole life. This is the one thing I want to do, and you're saying no. So I rebelled. I consciously made a choice to disobey. I seized my own blessing on my own terms. And so I experienced the consequences of that choice. Thankfully, this boy was like not a bad kid. (laughs) Honestly, like it was kind of a laughable relationship. We barely even kissed, didn't last long. But when the relationship ended, It left me feeling disappointed, devalued, and honestly just like really empty inside. But God had allowed me to experience the consequences of seizing my own blessing on my own terms and my disobedience and ultimately my rejection of his protection over me led to me getting hurt. See, as God's people, we're given a choice. We've always been given a choice. We will always be given a choice. In Deuteronomy 11, this is what God says. Today, can we go to um, Deuteronomy 11 if we have it? Today, I am giving you a choice. You may choose the blessing or the curse. You will get the blessing if you listen and obey the commands of the Lord your God that I have told you today. But you will get the curse if you refuse to listen and obey the commands of the Lord your God. So don't stop living the way I command you today and don't follow other gods that you don't know. Now, this seems very conditional. If we obey, we get blessing. If we disobey, we get cursed. But isn't that a contract? So what makes this a covenant? Well, then we read from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 54, um, verses 7 through 10. It says, for a brief moment, I abandon you. This is the Lord speaking. But with great compassion, I will take you back. In a burst of anger, I turned my face away for a little while, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Just as I swore in the time of Noah that I would never again let a flood cover the earth, so now I swear that I will never again be angry and punish you. For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. Hear this. My covenant of blessing will never be broken. Hold up. 
I thought you just said I have to obey to get the blessing, and if I don't obey, then I get the curse. But now you're like, your, ble- your covenant of blessing is never going to be broken, so which is it? Is God's blessing conditional, or is it unconditional? Is it law, or is it love? This question outlines the literary paradox of the entire Old Testament. In Exodus 34, when God reveals his nature to us, this is what we learn about him. He cares about sin, righteousness, holiness, justice, but his nature is disproportionately bent towards compassion and grace, being slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Gosh, he is a hard job. (laughs) So how does God maintain both law and love? How does he extend his love and his blessing towards us without compromising his holiness? Let's go back to the moment when God is making this covenant with Abram. I think we actually get the answer here. So, as we had said, Abraham, you know, Abram, he like makes, he slaughters the animals, great, they're on either side, there's blood, vultures come, he's chasing them away. <laughs> that's, that's the scene, people, that's the scene of the covenant. So, He's, everything's ready, and he's preparing because, of course, he's the servant. The Lord is the Lord. He's the one who's showing up with less to offer. And so he's like, okay, cool. I'm going to, like, walk the aisle. But instead, he falls into a deep sleep. Most commentators would agree that this was a sleep caused by God. Because not many people just like chase away vultures and then pass out. So they think that God actually put Abram into a deep sleep. Why? He was preventing Abram from walking the aisle. Because God knew that Abram, nor any man, would be able to keep the terms of the covenant. So instead, a thick darkness, a dreadful darkness came over. God reveals the the land that he's promising them. He's honest. He says, you're going to be enslaved, but I'm going to lead you out, and you will possess the land. And then God manifests his presence in the form of smoke and fire, and he walks the bloody aisle. He turns the ritual completely on his head. The Lord never walks through the aisle, only the servant. But what he was trying to communicate to Abram is that he's like, hey, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, let it be done unto me like these animals. And because I know that you cannot keep this side of the covenant, I'm walking for you. So that when you fail to keep your terms of the covenant, I will take the consequences because I so long to give you my blessing. And he did. 
He did through the person of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to take on the curses and the consequences of our sin so that we get to live only in the blessing of God. This is the gospel. Jesus didn't just take on the penalty of the curse, he became the curse, meaning that when he died, so did the curse. In Galatians 3, verses 13 through 14, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. (laughs) Truly, friends, this is the gospel. Jesus took care of the curse once and for all, and now we get to live in Abraham's blessing. This is how law and love marry. Righteousness and peace kiss. It is through this act of sacrifice. Paul goes on, oh, it gets better. So Paul goes on to say and explain that this blessing is not marked by material wealth or economic or social gain. And friends, I don't know what your definition of blessing is or what your idea of it is, but God's idea is one of flourishing It's one of multiplication, but the greatest blessing we will ever be given and have been given is that now the blessing of God is his spirit in us. Is his spirit in us. See, through Jesus, the blessing became not just some thing from God. The ultimate blessing is God. Is God. God with us and in us and through his spirit. Can we just like pause and take that in for a minute? We sang, I receive your gift. I receive your blessing. To receive God's blessing means that we believe that we are living in God's goodness, that Jesus took care of the consequences. So if this is true, then why do we still feel the effects of the curse? Are we done sinning? What about generational curses, generational sin patterns? This brings us to our final movement, which is the battle we still wage within covenant. Galatians 5 says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Did you catch that word? Again. Right? 
Do not let yourselves be burdened again. Okay? So we are freed from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. But we can act like slaves. We can act like it. Like malnourished children, we need to learn to trust and to have faith in our Father's ability to care for us. In John Mark Comer's book, God Has a Name, he says, Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Paul, in the same letter where he talks about the decisive victory of the cross to take care of the curse and to, and to declare our blessing, he also talks about a battle that still wages. So the spiritual implications of the curse, they're done. We are no longer slaves to sin, but the natural consequences of sin, they do still exist. For example, scientists have proven that the effects of alcoholism can be passed down to, wait for it, three to four generations. Sin changes the composition of our bodies. I want to share with you about kind of an interesting topic, <clears throat> sin and epigenetics. I've recently been introduced to epigenetics. Can't say it's been something I've been aware of for very long. Um, so this information actually comes out of a conversation that uh, Benji, our lead pastor, he had with an individual by the name of Lou Wing. He's the author of an upcoming book called Theology and Epigenetics. So essentially, epigenetics is a new science. And what they've discovered is that we can actually change the malleability of our biological composition based on environmental changes. So the children that I was referring to earlier, they experienced this, right? They had an environmental change, and in time, their mental psyches also changed. So we see this happen when trauma or addiction or other significant sins, whether ones that we've performed or something that's been done to us, um, happens. And then it's almost like they imprint themselves on our biology. Um, and so for generations, we see the effects of that. So one example of this is actually within Holocaust survivors. Um, three gener so studies have shown that three generations removed, people are recorded having had the same exact dreams of places they've never seen um, or, or things they've just like never even experienced. But the good news is that what they're learning, again, is through a safe environment of belonging that functions in the giving and receiving of forgiveness, these persons who are predisposed to their genetics can dramatically alter their, their family line. 
there's a theological term for this. It's actually called progressive sanctification, and it's the good news that we have the ability to change. So this reveals the vital importance of community, uh, being in a community of safety and belonging that models forgiveness because of what Christ has done for us. So God's goodness to you is even the fact that you're in this room. The church is a community of safety, of one where we practice as hard as we can to give and receive forgiveness. You're in good hands. In my family history, actually on both sides of um, my family, many of the men uh, struggle with alcoholism and have had struggled with alcoholism. So my parents, early on in life, they shared this family history with me and my two siblings. And they, they shared that because they said, we want to break this cycle of substance abuse within our family. And so because of that, we are making the, the decision to be an alcohol-free household. They also were like, alcohol alcohol's not bad. It's like a neutral substance, you know, all the things. But they're like, we are just choosing not to have it here. Um, and they're like, really what we want you to know is that life can be a fun, meaningful satisfying, fulfilling experience without help, like without the help of alcohol. Now, you might be sitting in your seat and you're like, whoa, that's like really extreme and kind of weird. Um, that's okay. But they took generational sin patterns seriously. They took it seriously. And I actually think that Paul calls us to do the same. Paul says, Stand firm. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So what does this mean for us in the light of the covenant? Like in light of everything that we've just learned, what does this mean for us? We've got a little more to go. Are you guys doing okay? Okay. This, this is where we're going to get some real telling of the hearts here. So if people think that we're still under a curse, then it gives them the right to never deal with their sin. But if we believe the truth that sin has already been dealt with, this should empower us to deal with generational curses and to deal with the things that have been passed down from generation to generation. Because if the curse has been dealt with at the cross, then no one is stuck. No one is stuck. If you believe that, that is a lie from the enemy. We are not slaves. And so, with all of the beauty and the blessing of the covenant at our backs, meaning it's pushing us forward, we engage the battle. We engage the battle of sanctification, which I'd like to share with you my definition of sanctification. I kind of like it. <laughs> Embracing our freedom to the fullest. That is sanctification. We get to be free. So let's be really free, right? Right? 
Okay, so here's what we're going to tackle. I'm going to tackle essentially two different components of curses that we experience today, that we feel the effects of. The first is what we've been talking about, these biblical curses, right? When God hands people over to the consequences of seizing our own blessing on our own terms. And sometimes we are affected by the sins of other people as well. So we'll talk about that. And then I want to address this other component, which is word curses. So what's a word curse? Because we're made in the image of God, and he has the ability to pronounce blessings and curses, blessings and consequences, we inherently carry the ability to bless and curse ourselves. And this manifests in our life in the power of the tongue with our words. So Proverbs 18, verse 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. I'd like to read to you the definition of a word curse. And this is from the Restoring the Foundations. It's an inner healing ministry. Anything spoken over you that you believe, that's key. If something's been spoken over you and you don't believe it, it's fine. That you believe, which is not in agreement with God's word, his nature, or his character. So in the East and ancient worlds, we actually see very real spiritual implications of word curses. Um, You know, this is probably more of like what you might think of when you hear the word curse, right? You're like, what, Harry Potter? I don't know. (laughs) When I was on a missions trip to Uganda, there was a young man who I met and um, he, he had a limp and he like walked with a crutch. And he was sharing with me um, and Isaac that he had become a Christian. But his dad was a witch doctor. And when his dad found out that he had become a Christian, he cursed him with a limp. See, they believe the power of their words. And when they invite the enemy to partner with them, with their words, great harm is done. Now, of course, Jesus gives us the authority to undo every curse. So we're like, no worries, we'll take care of this. So how do word curses manifest in the West? They are a bit less identifiable. They're not as in your face Um, I would say, but it might sound something like this, a teacher or a parent saying, you're not good enough. I wish you were more like whoever. It's you are statements. You are fat. You are ugly. You are whatever it may be, rather than you are doing and addressing a behavior. It's an attack on someone's character. Remember, a word curse is anything spoken over you that you believe, which is not in agreement with God's word, his nature, or his character. So how do we engage in battle and overcome these word curses? Okay, we find the answer in 2 Corinthians. 
in chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension, which the uh, definition of pretension is a claim or assertion of a claim to something that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So what does this look like in real life? Because I'm all about like, okay, but like for real, how do I do that? I have five steps. Okay. So step one, identify the lie or the ungodly belief. Why am I calling it ungodly? It's ungodly because it doesn't line up with his word. It doesn't line up with his character. It doesn't line up with his nature. Sometimes we are unaware of the word curses that we are living out of. So I just want to like suggest you chat with a close friend because they might actually have a better idea of the lie that you believe. Step two. Forgive whoever said or persons who contributed to you forming your ungodly belief. This is so key. If you cannot forgive, if we can't get past step two, you just can't go on. It won't work. If you skip over this, it actually won't work. And epigenetics would prove that. Remember, being in an environment where you can practice the giving and receiving of forgiveness is what changes our body's composition. So we have to forgive. Step three, in prayer, we renounce it. To renounce something is to formally declare one's abandonment of a claim, a right, or a possession. So it would look something like, God, I renounce um, I renounce that I'm not good enough. I renounce that. I formally declare that I am abandoning that. Step four, then we ask the Father what he says about us. So we're like, God, if that's not true, then what do you say is true about me? And we wait and we listen and he speaks. Step five, then we meditate on the truth of the Father's words. I said for 60 days. You're like, whoa! (laughs) Why 60 days? Because it takes a long time to believe. The children went to bed with loaves of bread for a long time. It takes time to change the wiring of our minds. I also would say, find supporting scriptures. You're like, okay, God said this. All right, great. Pick out two scriptures that say the same thing. Memorize them. So this might, you might be like here and you're like, oh, that feels like so prescriptive. Okay. This is what it looks like to break strongholds. It's not flashy. It's just believing that God will do what he said he'd do. Okay, we're almost there. You guys are doing great. So how do we fight against and engage in the battle of generational sin patterns 
that have formed us and been passed down to us. This is all about us learning how to be adopted children who believe in our freedom. Well, we're told to love the Lord with all of our heart, meaning emotionally, all of our soul, spiritually, mind, mentally, and strength physically. And so we pursue freedom in all of these four categories. All right, I'll try to clip it along here. So the first one, the work of the heart, okay? We have to first identify what's in our hearts. After we identify it, we have to admit it, and that takes some humility. I would encourage you to pay attention to your heart, okay? Pay attention. Your heart talks to you. Have you ever had an instance where you had a, you've experienced like a big emotional reaction to something that might not have merited a big emotional reaction? <laughs> There's probably a root in your heart that you need to deal with. And then very practically, reflect on your family tree, right? I'm like, hey, you know, alcoholism runs in my family. It's, sometimes it's pretty obvious to see what the common struggles or sin patterns are. Um, one generational sin pattern that I have had to engage in battle with, and ultimately the Lord has actually led me through to freedom, is that of anxiety. The women in my family, they just struggle, struggle with anxiety. And so my journey with anxiety began in high school, increased in intensity to the point where some days it was debilitating. So I first had to name it. I was like, oh, okay, um, I have anxiety. I struggle with anxiety. I had to call it what it was because the women in my family were very uncomfortable to actually just like say what it was. It's like, oh no, we get flustered. Okay. We just kind of get stressed sometimes. Pretty sure we can just diagnose it as anxiety. Cool. Identify it. Pursuing freedom spiritually with our soul, loving the Lord with our soul. So because we believe that the world is not just material and physical, often um, there are spiritual powers that are animating what is happening to us. Um, and this is what we would believe forms strongholds. So we listen to the Holy Spirit, and we listen to what he might be saying to us. And we identify, sometimes the Holy Spirit will just identify what it is. This is a spirit of fear, infirmity, addiction, greed, depression, etc. Um, in my own journey with anxiety, I was in a time of prayer, and um, Jesus he showed me this picture, and basically, I was in front of a door, and he was with me, and he said, Emily, what are you so afraid of? What's on the other side of the door? And I was like, oh. oh. So I, I began to articulate. I'm like, well, honestly, it was, it was things like, like, why just, like, what if I don't get a job when I graduate? Like, you know, what if X, Y, and Z? And he's like, oh, yeah. That's scary. Let's open the door. So he opened the door, and we walked in, and he goes, okay, but I'm still here, right? Yeah. And I still love you, right? Yeah. He's like, okay, cool. 
And then he took me to the next door. He's like, what are you so scared about? What's behind this door? I began to articulate what, what made me nervous. And then we opened the door and he walked in with me. And again, he reiterated, but will I be here? Yes, I will. Will I still love you? Yes, I will. And after opening all the doors, what I realized was, oh, it's going to be okay. Right? He did not promise me that none of those things would happen. What he promised me was that he'd always be with me, he'd never leave me, and he'd always love me. And that made me unafraid because perfect love casts out fear. And so we identify those spirits and we bind it in the name of Jesus and we command it to be gone. And then we welcome the Holy Spirit to take his, it's his place. He fills it up. He cast out the fear from my heart and he filled me with love. We pursue freedom mentally. So sometimes, um, just very practically, we can talk with a friend. We can invite them into the process of like what, helping us identify lies or ungodly beliefs, maybe writing it out in a journal that helps us to like see things more clearly, right? Um, and of course, I would just encourage you, like don't hesitate to lean into God's grace of Christian counselors and therapists and sometimes doctors. Thank you, Lord, for doctors, right? Like let's not be like weird about this. In my journey with anxiety, I saw a counselor. And she helped me, she gave me tools um, to really help me through moments where I was feeling overwhelmed. But I also consumed the word of God. And, and I ch- it helped me to change the pattern of my thinking. See, I began my journey with anxiety thinking, in order for me to be truly free, it needs to be gone. It needs to be gone, it needs to be out of my life. But then I read Psalm 23, verse 5, which says, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil and my cup overflows with blessing. So then my thought pattern, and even my prayers changed, but my thought pattern wasn't, oh, I just like need to be free of anxiety. No, then I began to say, oh, hello, anxiety, here you are, I didn't invite you, I don't know why you're here, but you can come and you can take a seat right here, yep, oh, hey there, fear, okay, come on in, you get to sit right here, join me at the banquet, because I'm going to feast on the goodness of God, and you're going to watch me, you're going to watch me, and you're going to watch the Lord fill my cup to overflowing with blessing. So again, my prayer no longer became like, God, like deliver me of this, although we can totally pray for deliverance. But I was like, Lord, however long it's here, would you make me a person who worships you? Would you make me a person who trusts you? Would you make me a person who believes that you are good even if I'm dining in the presence of enemies? Corey Ten Boom's sister, Betsy Ten Boom, they're famous Holocaust survivors, While in the concentration camp, Betsy was recorded saying this. Um, She said, there is no pit so deep. God's love is not deeper still. She voiced these words, not after, but while 
in the extermination camp. Beloved, we need to renew our minds. We need to renew our minds. What we perceive as our prison does not have to be an actual prison. It can be a place of worship, which is what we see Paul and Silas do. Okay, wow. Um, sorry, I'm, amen. Romans 12 verse two says this, don't copy the behavior and the customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, and it is pleasing, and it is perfect. Finally, we love the Lord with all of our strength, and so sometimes we just practically need to change some things about the way we're living our life in order to aid in helping to demolish and uh, these strongholds and feeling the effects of sin. So this could be changing what you eat or drink, exercising, downloading a purity app on your phone, changing your rhythms and habits. In my battle with anxiety, I noticed that there was a connection and a correlation to the amount of anxiety I was feeling to the amount of coffee I was drinking. So I stopped drinking coffee, and I began to work out every day. Then I realized there was a connection between my consumption of sugar and junk food to the amount of anxiety that I would experience. And so I, I stopped doing those things, not because I was like, oh, I just like want to lose weight and look great or something. No, because I wanted to help my body process my hormones in a well, like well. And it really became an act of worship. You know, Romans 12.1 says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your true and proper worship. Now, today, I drink coffee, and I enjoy sugar, <laughs> but I don't have anxiety. I was dealing with a generational curse. And when the Lord truly, truly dug the root up, it didn't grow back. It didn't grow back. So beloved, as we close today, here's what I want to remind you of. <clears throat> God is in covenant relationship with you and he's not going anywhere. In fact, he sacrificed a great amount because he was determined to give you all of his blessing. And he's not going to rest until he has all of us and we have full freedom. He is not giving up until when we are going to bed, we're like, no. I don't need the bread tonight. I don't need it. So if you're here today and you're just feeling discouraged by the battle that's still being waged for your full freedom, stand firm. Stand firm. And then I want to encourage you by these words from Paul. 
from the letter to the Philippians. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. I'd actually like to say because of your covenant in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we can be confident that where we are today is not where we're going to be in a week, not where we're going to be in a year, not where we're going to be in 10 years. Jesus is working for our freedom. He wants us to believe in our belovedness and our adoption. And it says he's going to complete it. It says carry it on. Carry it out all the way to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means, until the day? It means until the day we meet him. Until his second coming. He's not taking a break. He's not taking a rest. He is committed. So we're going to respond. And I just want to invite you to stand. Um, and, if, and if you need to leave and, and get your kids from Kids Church, we just want you to know we like love you and we bless you to do that, and that's totally fine. Um, but Pastor Brian's actually going to lead us in a corporate time of, of blessing. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thank you.